First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. Well, good morning, church family, and welcome to all of you who are watching and joining us for this time of worship today. Uh, This is now our third week of these online services. It kind of seems like we've already been at this for for a while now, but in light of our governor's uh, 30-day safer-at-home uh, order that came down this week. Uh, we know it's uh, going to be a little while yet until things return to uh, some uh, semblance of normalcy. Uh, but church, I do want you to hear that we will get there, uh, that this too shall pass. There will be a day uh, when uh, our kids will be able uh, to go to school again. Uh, there will be a day when we'll be able to go places again. And uh, most importantly, there will be a day when we'll be able to gather together in this place to worship the Lord together. That day is, is coming. Uh, but in the meantime, we are all in this together. I know my family is uh, going through and experiencing many of the same things that I know many of your families are. Uh, for our kids right now, our four boys, it uh, seems like if they're not doing chores and they're not uh, doing schoolwork, uh, the two words that we're hearing more than any other right now in our house are the two words, I'm bored. I wonder if there's any parents that can uh, relate to that. And so we're uh, just like you trying to come up with uh, just different uh, things to to do. I know we're doing the 30 day Lego challenge right now with our boys. I think last week we went out in the yard and and, uh, used some carpet and foam tiles and made kind of a little putt-butt course in the yard. Uh, Tonight, actually, we're going to be camping out in our uh, backyard. And, And so this is kind of a strange time right now. Uh, but, but it also is a special time, particularly uh, for those of us who are parents, to be able to just invest in our children and to be able to spend uh, some more time uh, with them than normally we can. Of course, one thing that our family has uh, been doing for the past few weeks is coming together in our living room and joining for these uh, times of worship on Sunday morning and also for the nightly devotions uh, that we've been uh, putting out as well. And uh, I think we have a picture of a few nights ago, our, our crew and our family room uh, watching uh, this uh, family devotion time uh, together. And, and what you can see on that uh, image there is just a little bit after that, uh, our son uh, Zeke, our little two-year-old, got up and started kind of dancing in front of the TV along with uh, Pastor David and the worship band. And then I thought to myself, clearly my son is not a Baptist if he's carrying on and, and, and dancing like that. But he was, but he was enjoying it. And I want to ask you to do something, though, right, either right now or at some point in this uh, worship time while your family is there gathered in your family room. I want to ask you to take a, a, a picture uh, together and, and to send it in, if you would, to that uh, email address that you see there, photos at fbcmail.org, photos at fbcmail.org. We're hoping to receive hundreds of these photos today. Uh, We're going to use them in a special way next week as a part of our Easter service. I know you're thinking, Pastor, I'm not in my Sunday best right now. I'm in my pajamas. And and listen, pretty much everybody right now who's watching this is in their pajamas. So don't don't worry about that. Uh, Just take that picture, send it in. And we're going to, again, we're going to use it in a special way next week. And then also we would ask you even sometime today, just to go ahead and post that picture Uh, somewhere on social media, on Instagram, on your Facebook page. You can use these hashtags, FBCMail, and the hashtag alone together. Uh, Because even though uh, we're alone, we're not able to uh, to join physically, we are still together. We're together right now uh, to worship the Lord. Uh, We're together to study 
his word. And we're going to turn to his word even now. And so today, if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, uh, would you open with me to John chapter 19. Today is a Palm Sunday, and this is our second week in our Easter teaching series called Your Life Story. And what we have been seeing in these weeks as we look at the story of Jesus's trial and Jesus's death and Jesus's resurrection is that our story is intertwined with Jesus's story. In fact, here is the main idea of this Easter teaching series. Your life story is the story of his life. Your life story is the story of his life. Last week we read about Jesus's trial before the Roman governor Pontius Pilate. And we saw that in some ways, even as Jesus was on trial, so were we. Next week on Easter Sunday, we're going to look at the resurrection of Christ and see how his resurrection has everything to do with our hope of a resurrection as well. And then today, as we look at the story of Jesus's death on the cross, we're going to see that this story, that Jesus's death has everything to do with us, that in fact, our eternity was hanging in the balance while Jesus hung upon that cross. Because the reality is none of us would be able to have eternal life were it not for the death that Jesus died. And so if we want to go to heaven when we die, and I'm pretty sure we all do, then we need to understand not only that Jesus died, but we need to understand why Jesus died as well. And so let's start by reading John's account of the crucifixion. It's found in John chapter 19. And and we should know also that John is giving us an eyewitness testimony that John was standing there at the foot of the cross right beside Jesus's mother, Mary. And so the things that he's writing to us here are things that he saw with his eyes and heard with his ears. Let's read it together. John 19, starting in verse 17. John writes, and he, Jesus, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha, where they crucified him, and two others with him, one on either side, and Jesus in the center. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, And it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier apart, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece, They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus, therefore, saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, He said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing 
that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Therefore, because it was the preparation day, that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. For these things were done that the scriptures should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. Verse 38, after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews preparation day for the tomb was nearby. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for this life-changing story of the death of your son, Jesus. We pray, Father, you would help us today that we might see Christ and him crucified, that we might have life in his name. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, we're talking about how our life story is intertwined with the story of Jesus. And today, as we look specifically at the cross of Christ, I want us to see three ways that our lives are intertwined with the death of Jesus. The first way that they are intertwined is that when Jesus carried his cross, really, Jesus carried our cross. Because the cross that Jesus carried was the cross that we deserved to be carrying. At this point in the story, Jesus has already been severely whipped or flogged. He has already been unjustly sentenced to death by Pontius Pilate, who gave in to the demands of the Jewish leaders and of the crowd. And then the first thing that we read about in verse 17 is about Jesus carrying his cross. Look at that with me. It says, And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. And when it says that Jesus bore his cross, most likely he didn't carry the entire cross, but rather the horizontal beam of the cross. Most likely the vertical beam of the cross was waiting for him there at the execution site. The other gospel writers tell us that Jesus, who again had already been flogged by this time, in his weakened state was not able to physically carry his cross beam all the way to the execution side. And so when he stumbled under the weight of the cross, the Roman soldiers grabbed a man out of the crowd. His name was Simon of Cyrene. 
And Simon carried our Lord's cross on the way to uh, his execution site. Uh, Here in John's gospel, he doesn't choose to include that detail. He keeps the focus upon Jesus and the things that Jesus did for us. But one thing to keep in mind, even though this man, Simon, uh, for some paces carried a cross that Jesus could not carry, we need to remember that even at that moment, Jesus was carrying a cross that Simon of Cyrene could not carry. Uh, That Jesus was carrying a cross that none of us could carry. Because really the cross that Jesus was carrying that day was the weight of the sin of the world. Of your sin and my sin that the Father had laid upon him. The scripture tells us that the penalty for our sin is death. We were the ones who had sinned. We were the ones who deserved to carry that cross up that hillside and to be crucified. But Jesus carried our cross instead. And so when we see him on that first Good Friday carrying that cross beam on his back, we need to remember that he was carrying our cross as he went up that hillside. Verse 17 tells us the name of the execution site was Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. The Latin name Calvary refers to the same place. It was most likely a little hill that was located just outside the walls of the city of Jerusalem, located right beside a major road where people would pass by and see those who were being executed. In verse 18, John describes the actual crucifixion itself in the briefest of terms. In our English translation, there's only four words given to the crucifixion. It simply says, where they crucified him. Just four words. And yet those four words have the power to change our lives, to change our very eternities. They put nails through the top of Jesus's wrist. They hoisted him up connecting the horizontal beam to the vertical beam. They then would have crossed Jesus's feet and driven another nail through both of his feet and into the wood. And then they left him there to die. Crucifixion was not invented by the Romans, but it was perfected by the Romans. And it was a form of execution, a form of torture that was so terrible that the Romans would not even use it upon their own citizens, but only upon foreigners like the Jews, like Jesus. Jesus wasn't the only one who was crucified there that day. Verse 18 tells us that there were two thieves, perhaps even associates of Barabbas who had been freed earlier in the story. They were crucified, one on Jesus' right hand, one on his left hand with Jesus in the middle. The other gospel writers tell us more about these two men. They even tell us that one of these thieves put his faith in Christ and was saved even as he hung on the cross beside the Lord Jesus. In verses 19 through 23, we read about the sign that Pilate had fixed to the top of Jesus' cross. It was common for the Romans to write on a little wooden placard whatever the crime was that the person had committed. They would nail that to the top of the cross so that people would pass by and they would see that sign and they would read and understand this is what this person has been executed for. And they used that as a deterrent. Well, Pilate knew that Jesus had not committed any crime. And so while it is doubtful that he believed what he wrote and a kind of final stab to get back at the Jewish leaders, he commanded that they wrote on Jesus's placard, 
Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And the Jewish leaders did not care for that. And they went to Pilate and they said, no, don't, don't write that. Add, add the words, he said, I am the King of the Jews. But Pilate was not in any mood to be pushed around by these religious leaders, not anymore on this day. And so he replied by saying, what I have written, I have written. In other words, I'm not changing the sign and you need to deal with it. And yet the extreme irony of all of this is that while Pilate meant those words sarcastically, the words that Pilate had written on that sign, the words that were written above Jesus's head as he hung on the cross were completely and totally true. Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. He was the King of God's chosen people. He was the Son of David. He was the Messiah, the King that they had been waiting for. And he wasn't just the King of the Jews. He was the King of the whole world. Pilate's sign was written in three languages so that anyone passing by would be able to understand what it meant. Jesus was everyone's King. Friend, he's your King and he is my king, and what a king he is. A king who loved us enough to suffer and die in our place on that tree. We won't spend long here, but John also tells us in verses 23 and 24 about how the Roman soldiers who crucified Jesus callously divided up his clothing while they were standing there at the foot of the cross. They divided up the pieces that they could, but then the inner garment, the tunic that Jesus wore, which was all one piece, they didn't want to tear it. And so they cast lots. They gambled to see which one of the soldiers would go home with that tunic. And what they didn't realize is that in doing that, they were fulfilling a prophecy that's found in the Old Testament way back in Psalm 22. Words that were written a thousand years before Jesus' time. In fact, in Psalm 22, we find several prophecies that were fulfilled in Jesus' death upon the cross. Look at just a few verses in Psalm 22. It says, My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death, for dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Again, King David wrote these words of Psalm 22 a thousand years before the time of Christ. King David had never seen a crucifixion or even heard of a crucifixion because crucifixion hadn't even been invented yet. And yet he describes in exact detail the things that Jesus experienced upon the cross. He speaks about his thirst, which we'll read a little later in our passage. He speaks about how his hands and his feet were pierced. And then in that final verse, verse 18, he speaks about what the soldiers did, gambling for his clothes. Now the soldiers gambled for his clothes simply out of their greed and out of their callousness. And yet God in his sovereignty used what they did at the foot of the cross to fulfill precisely what he had already written in his word would take place on that day. Christian, our faith is really not a blind leap in the dark as some atheist would have us believe. No, our faith is a reasonable faith that is based on the word of God and promises that our God has already kept. Verses 25 through 27. 
is so touching to me as well. As Jesus is literally hanging on the cross, paying for the sins of the world, and yet in those moments, he is still mindful of his own mother. And he speaks to Mary and he speaks to his disciple John who is standing beside her and he essentially tells John to take care of his mother after he is gone. And in my view, this action of our Lord is the ultimate example of obedience to the commandment to honor your father and your mother. Jesus honoring his mother hanging from the cross. You know, this is somewhat of an aside, but, but right now with everything that is happening in our world right now with the coronavirus and how those who are uh, older are particularly susceptible and experiencing the effects of this, you know, this is a special opportunity for those of us who are blessed to still have our parents living, to provide for them, to take care of them to whatever degree that we can. That This is an opportunity for us to honor our father and our mother, just as Jesus does, even while hanging on the cross. We're looking again at the ways that Jesus's life and death intertwine with ours. We've already seen how Jesus carried our cross. And now we come to the very heart of this story and we see that Jesus also died our death. Look with me at what it says in verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. It's amazing to me that the same Jesus who in John chapter 7 said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink, that this same Jesus here in his humanity says, I thirst from the cross. But I especially want you to notice the final words of that verse, verse 28, when it says there, that Jesus now knowing that all things were now accomplished. Jesus, his death upon the cross was accomplishing something. He died for a reason. He died for a purpose. He died to pay for our sins. If you look at verse 30, these are the final words that John records of Jesus saying from the cross. John 30, so when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said it is finished. The words translated, it is finished, or in some versions, it is accomplished, is really just one word in the original language. It's the word tetelestai, which means paid in full. It was a word that was used in, in many different ways in Jesus's day. It was used by people when they would complete a job or a project. They would say tetelestai, it is done. It was used by painters when they would finish a work of art. They would say, Tetelestai, it's, it's finished. This was a word that was used by merchants when they would sell something in the marketplace. And someone would pay for that product and they would stamp on their receipt this word, Tetelestai, paid in full. You know, the other day I, I braved it and I went into Walmart. I needed to get a few things for, for our family and I, and I looked down the toilet paper aisle 
still nothing there, uh, but, but went to some other parts of the store. I was able to get some, you know, some bread and some meat and chicken, just different things that we needed. And, and then went up to the self uh, checkout line. And of course they had the little things on the ground, you know, keeping us six feet apart. I mean, there, there are things that are happening right now that we're always going to remember uh, these days. And, and eventually made my way up to the checkout register and uh, paid for all those items and it printed out a receipt. And you know, when I looked at the bottom of that receipt, just like any receipt, it had the word paid there and it showed how much I paid for those items. And, you know, if I took that receipt and, and I was stopped at the door uh, by someone there, I, I would just be able to show them that receipt and show them that I paid for all of these items, that I didn't owe anything else for what was there. Friend, you know, the Bible says that we owe God a debt because of our sin. It's a debt that is an infinite debt because our sin is against an infinitely holy God. It's a spiritual debt that you and I would never be able to pay back in a million lifetimes. In fact, the reality is every day as we sin and stumble and fall, we're just adding to the debt that we already owe God. And yet the good news of the Bible is what we've read about today, that Jesus Christ, when he hung upon that cross, his death was accomplishing something. His death was paying the price that you owed and that I owed. And he didn't just pay a part of it. No, the scripture says he paid for all of it. And because he paid for all of it, and because he shouted out that word as he hung from the cross to tell us die, paid in full, then what that means for us, if we know Christ, if Jesus Christ is our Savior and our Lord, if we've received him into our life, what that means is that not that somebody else's sin or somebody generally their sins have been forgiven. What that means is that our sins have been forgiven. That your sin, Christian, and my sin has been paid in full. Because it's been paid in full, there's nothing that we can add to it. And so when we serve the Lord, we're not serving from a posture of, but I'm trying to work to earn something and trying to, to do enough to get my salvation. No, there's nothing we can add to what Christ has already done. And so instead we're serving the Lord from a place of gratitude and a place of joy. We're serving the one who has already paid it all for us. It's so important, friend that your confidence never be in what you have done or what you are doing, but that your confidence is always in what Jesus Christ has already done. Friend, because it's all been paid for, there's nothing left for you and I to do but to open up our heart and receive by faith the gift of Jesus and what he's already done to save us. When we come to verse 30, we read about an event that one has called the supreme moment of all of history. The moment when the very Son of God bowed His head and died. You know, it will take us all of eternity to think about the depths of all that was happening in that moment when the giver of life died upon the cross. In verses 31 through 37, it describes what the Roman soldiers did after Jesus had died. Uh, they wanted to hasten the death of those who were on the cross. And, and so they took an iron mallet and they uh, broke the legs of the two thieves who hung on either side of Jesus. That would have hastened their death. They would have no longer been able to push up to get uh, any air and they would have died very quickly at that point. 
But when they came to the body of Jesus and saw that he had already died, they didn't break his legs, but instead they took a spear and one of the soldiers jabbed that spear into Jesus' side. The scripture says that blood and water flowed out. It signifies that Jesus was in fact certainly dead, but also the actions that the soldiers took fulfilled two more prophecies about the Messiah from the Old Testament. First of all, a prophecy in Psalms that said that none of his bones would be broken. And then a prophecy in Zechariah that said they will look on him in whom they have pierced. You know, that first prophecy about uh, his bones not being broken is especially important because Jesus died during the Passover feast. If you're not familiar with the Passover, you can go back and read about it in Exodus chapter 12. But Jesus died at precisely the time when the Passover lambs would have died at three o'clock on that Friday afternoon. You know, one of the qualifications of the lambs that were sacrificed at Passover was that not one of their bones could be broken. And so here we have Jesus, the perfect lamb, Not one of his bones is broken. And here he is suffering as a final sacrifice for our sin. You know, it reminds me about something that's written way back at the beginning of the book of John in John chapter 1. Something that John the Baptist said one day when he saw Jesus walking by and he pointed at him and he said these words about Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Church, I hope that we will behold the Lamb this Easter. I hope that we will look at Him and think deeply about everything that He has done for us. May we see that not only was He carrying our cross and not only was He dying our death, but also Jesus was buried in our tomb. Verses 38 through 42 describe how these two men came and took Jesus' body down from the cross and how they prepared His body for his burial. I wish we had more time to talk about these two men, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was a man that we met earlier in the Gospel of John, way back in John chapter 3. As it references here in verse 39 in our story, Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. He came by night most likely because he didn't want other people to know that he was going to Jesus to inquire and find out more about him. Nicodemus was a man who knew so much about the Bible, had so much of the Old Testament scriptures memorized. And yet Jesus famously looked at him and said, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You know, in John 3, it doesn't actually tell us the end of Nicodemus's story. We don't know whether he believed in Christ and followed Christ or not. We don't hear anything else about how his story really comes to an end until we come to the end of John's gospel. And I love that right here, at the end of the gospel, after Jesus' death, we find the end of Nicodemus' story. As he comes and he brings spices and he's one of two men who comes to care for Jesus' body after he died. You know, as I think about these two men, Joseph and Nicodemus, both of whom were not willing to publicly follow Christ until after Jesus' death. I just wonder if there's anybody who is watching right now, and maybe God is calling you to take a step of faith this Easter, like those two men did that first Easter. Maybe God is calling you to stop wavering about your decision to follow Christ and to stop worrying about what other people are going to think. 
but this Easter to surrender your life fully to the Lord, to publicly declare your faith in Him and your desire to follow Him as His disciple. Verse 41, it tells us how Jesus' body was taken and laid in a tomb that had never been used before, in a garden tomb. It was a tomb that did not belong to Jesus, but rather was owned by Joseph of Arimathea. In other words, Jesus was laid in a borrowed tomb. And yet I hope we understand that when we think about it, Jesus didn't just borrow that tomb from Joseph of Arimathea. Jesus also, in a way, borrowed that tomb from us. Because were it not for what he did on the cross, were it not for the fact that he died and paid for our sins, the Bible says we would be forever, eternally, in a tomb, eternally dying a death in a place the Bible calls hell. But I am so thankful for King Jesus that because he went to that cross and because he went to this tomb, that we don't have to die, but we can live eternally with the Lord. Uh, You know, if you're watching this right now, and maybe you've never understood why it was that Jesus died on the cross until now, but you're beginning to understand that God is working in your heart, and you know this is the time, this is the moment I need to surrender my life to the King. I just want to ask you to reach out to us. Just send us a brief note to this email address, believe at fbcmail.org, believe at fbcmail.org. We'd love to reach out to you and just to help you as you take those first few steps of faith on that road of following Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior. You know, where our story for today ended uh, was with Jesus' body in the tomb in the garden. Of course, that's where his body would remain from that Friday afternoon until Sunday morning. It's amazing to think about that. The King of Kings, the giver of life, laying lifeless there in the grave. You know, there's a famous sermon by an African-American preacher named S.M. Lockridge that's called It's Friday, But Sunday's Coming. I'm sure many of you have seen that, but if not, you can search for that on YouTube. Just look up those words. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. It's so powerful as he just continues to hammer home that idea that even though it's Friday now, that Sunday is coming. I wonder if there's someone here right now and you're watching and you're a part of this worship time and and you just need to be reminded of that right now. With everything that's going on in the world around you, it's Friday right now. Things are scary. It's hard to see how it will end. But to remember, Sunday is going to come. And not only the Sunday of the end of the coronavirus plague, that Sunday will come. But much more importantly, the Sunday of the return of King Jesus is going to come. There's going to be a day when the trumpets are going to sound and King Jesus will return. And and on that day, the Bible tells us that all death and all sickness and all sorrow and all suffering will run away like shadows when the sun comes in all of its brightness. One day, that Sunday is going to come. And church, that Sunday is going to come because of a glorious Sunday that already came that first Easter Sunday that we're going to celebrate next week. 
We're not going to celebrate that here in one house of God. Instead, we're going to celebrate that next week in a thousand houses all over this community. And a cry of victory is going to rise up to the Lord from all of our hearts because we know that even though it is Friday, that there is a Sunday coming, that our Lord didn't just die upon the cross on Friday, but he rose again from the grave on Easter Sunday morning. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your love for us. We thank you that your son and our savior, that he carried the cross that was ours to carry. We thank you, God, that he went to a tree and he was crucified there and he died a death that we deserve to die. We thank you, Father, that he was buried in a tomb that would have been ours, a tomb that we would have laid in for all eternity. But we thank you, Father, that that Sunday came, that next week we'll be able to celebrate the hope of the resurrection that we have. We thank you that the King of glory lives, that because of his death and his burial and his resurrection, that we can have life, abundant life now, and eternal life forever with you. We thank you, we praise you, our God and our King. In Jesus' name, amen.